Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to uh, pull them out. Uh, Pull out your Bible, pull out your tablets, pull out your cellular mobile. We are in the Gospel of John. Uh, If you are a guest this morning, uh, welcome in Christ's name. We are going through the Gospel of John. We started this back in January, and we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. And here we are, uh, about halfway through the Gospel of John, and we're already at the very end of Jesus' life. It's coming into Holy Week now as we know it. And uh, the first part of John is focusing on those first uh, 33 years of his life. And and now John's going to spend all this time uh, from John 11 all the way through to the very end, focused on the very last part of his life. And the thing that we talked about recently, uh, kind of uh, this kind of this plot, this hatch, uh, this this plot that was hatched to kill Jesus. And really, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, what we're seeing is this crescendo of the people in power, the people in authority getting angrier and angrier with Jesus and his teachings and his miracles, uh, signs as John the disciple uh, records them. And what really kind of broke the back uh, of these folks is uh, the healing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They said, this is too much. Uh, We just can't take it anymore. We have got to kill him. We've got to get rid of him. And so that's what we've been talking about uh, most recently uh, and how they responded and reacted to Jesus. Um, And they had such a short-term focus. They thought, we're going to get rid of him and then everything's going to be okay. And so this morning, we're going to kind of pick up uh, right after that, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And isn't it interesting, here we are 2,000 years later and we continue to experience the consequences uh, of how those folks responded on that day, which I think ought to be a great reminder for us as we're responding to Jesus. We think that we're responding to Jesus in the here and now or the circumstances around us today, but how we live our lives today can have ripple effects long into the future. So we're going to be at John 12 this morning, uh, picking it up with verse 1. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, yet another beautiful day to worship you in your sanctuary. God, we thank you for your word, which continues to lead us, to guide us, to invite us to walk with you. Uh, Now, Lord, as we enter into this final week of Jesus' life on this earth. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, a few weeks after the COVID shutdown began in the spring of 2020, an author by the name of Andy Crouch uh, posed a question in the form of a metaphor to really kind of ask us uh, to kind of ponder the season uh, in which we, are all, we were all going through. And he said, he just simply asked this question. He said, you know, I wonder if this pandemic that we're recently experiencing, I wonder if it's a blizzard or I wonder if it's more like going to be a long winter or I wonder if this pandemic is more like an ice age. And if you were anything like me in the spring of 2020, I thought to myself, well, this is just a blizzard, temporary shutdown. And I remember after Easter that year, I started standing in front of a video camera and recording sermons called, uh, and we had the sermon series called Into the Wilderness. Uh, 
And it was really strange talking into a video camera. You guys were on the other side and we'd communicate on the phone or through email. And in my mind, I thought, okay, pretty soon we're going to all get back to normal because this is just a blizzard. Then we began to slowly, I began to slowly realize this is probably more like a long winter. That spring will eventually come. That eventually we'll get to be back together again, but it's going to be just a little bit longer. Our lives have been disrupted, interrupted, but we'll get back to it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And now what sociologists are telling us is that the COVID pandemic, the COVID lockdown, is actually more like an ice age. It's actually been a game changer and will continue to experience the reverberations and the consequences for years, for decades. Some are even suggesting from 100 years from now, we will still be experiencing the reverberations of the COVID lockdown. And early on, one of the consequences we thought of was, well, the financial, right? Many people lost their jobs. Many people were interrupted, disrupted in their work and their jobs and in their work environments and working from home and all that. And actually, it's turned out that financially, it hasn't been the biggest problem for all of us. What an even bigger problem, a more long-term problem with the COVID lockdown is with our kids. And they're saying now, and they're seeing the results in test scores, especially with our elementary school kids, that there's been a great decline, a, a great uh, uh, holdback on how our kids are performing academically. The pandemic, the shutdown, has really impacted our elementary school kids across the nation because they, they miss that time together in the classroom with their teachers. And, they, and, and they're saying that we're, these kids, for years and years and years, are going to be challenged academically because they miss that time together. And some of you parents are like, I know. I don't need a sociologist to tell me that. Our kids have really suffered and struggled. But perhaps the greatest consequence of the COVID lockdown has not been for us adults. It hasn't been for the elementary school kids but for our junior high and high school kids. Because what has happened to them has impacted them socially. They haven't been allowed to go out and socialize with other kids. And what, the, what now soci sociologists, many sociologists are saying is because they have not developed these social skills. First, it was all the technology in their lives. They spent a lot of times on the screens before. And then COVID came along and they're spending even more time on their screens. And our junior high and high school kids have been deeply impacted socially and struggled to develop these social skills. And some are saying we are going to be feeling this lockdown, especially with that, that generation, that group of kids for decades, maybe even up to the next 100 years. Now, anything, anytime something traumatic happens in our lives, whether it's a COVID lockdown or a death of a loved one, a breakup of a relationship, our minds tend to think, well, this is just a blizzard. This is just a crisis. This is something that happens in the here and now. Well, I'll get over it and I'll move on with my life. 
But isn't it true that oftentimes when we experience trauma in our lives, it's more like a long winter where it's a season of stuck and, tr- and trouble and, and, and be trying to figure out where to go from here. And even sometimes in the midst of the trauma, there are long-term consequences. Maybe for the rest of your life, it's more like an ice age. For years and years and years, you could point back to that one instance, that one circumstance, but it keeps going and going and going. And maybe now it's impacting the next generation. And so this morning, as we look at the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, I think in many ways, I want to invite us to lean into this metaphor. Because everybody on that day, they were thinking they're looking for, you know, just a a blizzard, a snowstorm, an interruption. But what actually was going on was an ice age. Something that was going to have reverberations and consequences for decades, hundreds of years And here we are 2,000 years later. So let's pick it up with John 12, beginning with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember, we talked about this recently. This just happened. Here a dinner was given in in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out... uh, took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So the story starts out, or the text starts out, where there's a dinner, there's a celebration party. Because of what Jesus had done. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. And I got to thinking about that, this this party that they're throwing to honor Jesus for what he has done in the life of Lazarus. Now, well, that's what we do every Sunday morning. What we do every single Sunday morning is we gather together in this place to worship God, to say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my life and in all of our lives. God, you've taken many people who've been blinded, who've been wounded, whom you have raised from the dead. And so we're just going to come before you and we're going to say thank you. So what we do on Sunday morning, this is just a party of gratitude, saying, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in my life, in our collective lives together. And I think that's why it matters so much, that we should never become complacent about the gathering together of God's people, because it just invites us to come in a position before God and say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And so then there's Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And what I love about this is they're really responding. They're responding to Jesus in three different ways. It's about discipleship. It's about the ways in which you and I are also invited to respond to Jesus. And so let's start with uh, Martha here for just a second. Martha was so grateful for what Jesus had done in in her life that she just starts serving, right? That's who Martha is. She's a server. And this is how Martha expresses her gratitude to God. She just starts serving. She just walks around and starts taking care of people. And maybe that's like some of you. When you feel grateful for what God has done in your life, you worship God by serving him. 
hey, sign me up for Midwest Food Bank. Sign me up for the fishing uh, 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 party in a couple weeks. Sign me up to go to Ecuador. I need a bottle of water. Can somebody <coughs> grab me a bottle of water here? Sign me up to serve. <coughs> you gave that to me. Okay, thank, thank you, Perry. Sign me up. <coughs> so what I want to do is I want to serve. So Perry comes up here and gives me a bottle of water. Perry's grateful this morning. So that's what he does. He just serves. And that's what so many of you do, is you serve. But it's not just um, Martha, who's there that day, is also... Lazarus. What's Lazarus doing? He's sitting at the table with Jesus. We call that abiding. It's just hanging out with. Notice Lazarus doesn't say a single word in the text. In fact, Lazarus never says anything in the Bible at all. He's just there. He's a testimony. There's, you know, and so I think about us and, and many of you is you are worshiping Jesus. One of the most important, meaningful things you do in your life is you abide with Jesus. You spend time in his word. You spend time in prayer. You spend time outdoors just listening to his voice in your life. And that is a wonderful way and an important way for you to be worshiping Jesus, just like Lazarus. Then there's Mary. And Mary, she's all extravagant about everything else. And there she is <coughs> on her feet or on her knees at the feet of Jesus. And she's washing his feet with her hair. And she's got this expensive perfume. And it's just this extraordinary, uh, generous amount of worship that she's offering him. I, I, I think of Mary as uh, almost like the, the Pentecostal in the group. She's just doing stuff that's a little bit weird. Sometimes some of you in your worship time, maybe you're uh, at home driving in the car or in the shower, you're just singing at the top of your lungs. I don't know if you've ever done that before. That's Mary. She's just got to get it all out. She's just very emotional. And she's just trying to proclaim to God, God, you are so good. Jesus, I am so grateful for what you've done. And what Mary has done here, she's put this, this pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and, and what scholars say is this is somewhere between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 worth of perfume that she's washing his feet. She takes that which is most valuable to her and she just washes his feet and, and just says, you are the most important thing in my life. She's so extravagant in the ways in which she serves Jesus. And there's just this outpouring of love in her life. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my own life, I just have this overwhelming sense of love. And, and, and I want other people to experience things that I love. One of the things I love is pizza. And so sometimes I try to convince my wife, hey, she's like, hey, what, what do you want to eat? I'm like, let's eat pizza. She's like, no, nah, I don't want pizza. And for years, we've been married 29 years. I've been trying to share with her and convince her that pizza is where it's at. And I want her to love pizza like I love pizza. Or I think about my kids. I want my kids to love C.S. Lewis like I love C.S. Lewis. 
Just like, oh, there's another C.S. Lewis quote. And they're like, Dad, we're okay with SpongeBob. Or how about you guys? I want you all to love the, Atlanta, the world champion Atlanta Braves like I love the world champion of Atlanta Braves. And you guys just seem pretty lukewarm to the Braves. I don't get it. I, I, I would think you would want to root for a winning team. But some of you are just like, no, we're okay. I want you to love the things that I love. But I tell you what, what keeps me awake at night is more than anything, I want you to love Jesus. I want you to just have this burning passion in your life. I want you to wake up every single day and just ask yourself, how can I serve Jesus? How can I sit at the feet of Jesus today? How can I walk with Jesus today? I want you to have that love for Jesus, like Mary loves Jesus as she's just sitting at his feet. And I think it's important for all of us to experience these ways of worship, just like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So there's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus worshiping Jesus. And there's Judas criticizing all that's going on. And what John, the writer, John the disciple, is really trying to do in this writing this morning is really trying to contrast our lives of what it means to be worshipers. Do we show up to worship like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus with a grateful heart? Or do we show up to worship on Sundays or in our everyday life with just really looking at what can I get from God? When you came to worship this morning, and when you're, were you thinking to yourself, gee, I wonder what the sermon's going to be like today. I've got some friends coming. I've got some family coming. What can I get from the sermon today? What can I get from the message today? Or did you show up to worship this morning asking yourself, I wonder how I can serve today. I wonder how I can worship God today. I wonder how I can contribute to the life of this faith community and contribute to my walk with Jesus Christ. And so what the question we always have to be asking ourselves is when we approach worship, are we, do we come to worship with an attitude of what do I get from worship or what am I giving to worship? Clearly, Judas was in this for himself. Verse 9, meanwhile, <coughs> a large crowd found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So they made this plan. We're not only going to kill Jesus, but we're also going to kill Lazarus. Because his very life is a testimony to who Jesus is. That he is the son of God. And that all of his teachings are true. And so I want to ask you this morning... Is your life a testimony? Is your life a testimony like Lazarus pointing to God? Verse 12. 
The next day, the great, uh, the great crowd had come for the festival, uh, for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. I'm going to do that again. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple details here I just kind of want to lift out. It says, the next day, the great crowd. And I think John is actually underestimating how big of the crowd it actually was. So scholars say that Jerusalem uh, had somewhere between 50 and 150,000 people. I know that's a big range. So let's just say Jerusalem in the time of Jesus was about the size of Bloomington Normal, okay? And, and that's about, you know, the, the land mass that it was. But every year during Passover, people from all over the region would, would gather for Passover, for the Passover celebration. And there's a, a historian, a Jewish historian, a guy by the name of Josephus, and he said, you know, in, a, in an average, typical Passover every year, about 256,000 lambs were slaughtered and sacrificed in Jerusalem. Now, what you need to know is for every lamb, about 10 people shared that lamb for the Passover meal. So do the math. That means about two and a half million people descended on Jerusalem. Can you imagine two and a half million people coming into Bloomington Normal for a week-long party? Every hotel is booked. All of your houses become an instant Airbnb, Airbnb, and you still live there. Everybody is, your house is packed. And by the way, outside of your house, in your yard, people are setting up tents all over the place. This place would be canvas filled with tents. That's what Bloomington Normal would look like. That's what Jerusalem looked like. It was packed. And remember, this is long before the days of Bob's porta potties, right? It was people on top of people for the Passover celebration. So when, when John says a great crowd, we're like, oh, we kind of missed that. Oh, no. It was packed. There were people everywhere. The next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So one other thing that I want to lift out that I think we oftentimes miss. It says, the next day. The next day is a very specific day. And it's a very significant day. It's now five days before the Passover. And what any Jewish people, Jewish person knows is that five days before Passover, before the lambs get slaughtered, Every Jewish family goes and they pick out a lamb. So it was a day of, of, of choosing. It was a day of, of finding the best lamb that you could find. And for the next five days, you would examine that lamb. And it would be presented on the last day, the day of Passover, to be slaughtered. On the Jewish calendar, this was known as uh, the 10th day of Nisan. So on the 10th day of Nisan, you would pick out that lamb. You would choose that lamb. And you would spend time over the next several days examining that lamb. In our Julian calendar, that's April 6, 32 AD. And so what's going on in the text, so we just look at this as the next day. And what John is saying is it was a very specific day. It was the 10th day of Nisan. And those lambs were selected for the Passover. And what's going on in the text 
is Jesus for the first time in his ministry, the first time in his life, he is proclaiming himself to be the lamb who has been selected to come into the world and would be slain for all the world to forgive us of our sins. So it's a very specific day. It's a very significant day. Four days later, the Passover would come. The Jewish nation would actually reject him, but the lamb would still be slaughtered. Verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So they got these palm branches, and we think about palm branches, and uh, we think, oh yeah, Palm Sunday, of course that's what's going on. But for the Jewish people who are gathered there on that day, what they were thinking is they were thinking about about 150 years earlier when there was another uh, invading nation that had come into Jerusalem to come into the land of Judea. That, that time it was the Syrians. And a, a, a rebellion arose. A group of people under Judas Maccabees and his brothers. They said, we're not going to put up with this. We're tired of being enslaved. And Judas Maccabees, he and his brothers were a lot like the Patrick Henry of the day. Give me liberty or give me death. They were fighters. They were warriors. And this became known as the Maccabee Revolt. And so what they did is they actually drove out the Syrians. It was, a, it was their Independence Day. It was their celebration. And we, of course, know it as Hanukkah. And so this is what the Jews celebrated is their, their independence over the Syrians. And after they had victory over the Syrians, what they did is they got out the palm branches. And as the warriors came home, they laid these palm branches out and they waved these palm branches in a great celebration of Hanukkah. So when Jesus is coming into town and they're waving these palm branches, they're, when they're yelling, Hosanna, save us now, they are thinking about political saviors. They are thinking about military warriors. They're thinking about, we have another Messiah, someone who's before us, who's going to get rid, not of the Syrians this time, but this time who is going to get rid of the Romans. They were thinking very short term. They were thinking, let's just get rid of the Romans. And it might just be Jesus who's going to lead us in political victory where we can reestablish our nation once again. Save us now. Save us now. And they're shouting, Hosanna. Save us now. And we think, we hear these words, save us now, we're thinking, God, save us, rescue us from our sins. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, save us now, right here, right now. They were thinking short term. And as we talked a little bit about last week, God is much more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. We tend to pray things, God, save us now, rescue us now, help us now. And God says, I'm in this journey, this discipleship journey with you for the long term. I care more about the sin in your life so that you can spend all of eternity with me. And so they're actually prophesying, save us now. They don't realize it. They think they're just saying, save us right now. But they're actually proclaiming that Jesus has come to save the whole world of our sins. 
Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This comes from Zechariah 9.9, 500 years. 500 years before this prophecy of how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Not on a horse, as Jeff talked about earlier today. Because a horse meant they were coming in to, to fight a battle, to fight a war. But to come on a donkey, on a colt, this, the image uh, was symbolism for the, the Messiah will come in peace to reconcile God's people with their heavenly father. And so there's lots and lots of uh, imagery and uh, testimony here to what's going on. Now, Revelation 19 says that Jesus will come again. He's coming again next time on a horse. And when he comes on a horse, he's coming to defeat all the enemy powers of this world, both seen and unseen. And it's going to be a great battle. And Jesus will be victorious. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because uh, they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. So to kind of sum it all up, the Pharisees are frustrated. The people in power are frustrated. They're angry, they're mad, they're frustrated. This isn't getting us anywhere. We got to do something. And then there's the crowd who's there. And the crowd does what crowds do. They're fickle. Hosanna, one day. Just a few days later, crucify him. This is what crowds do. They just blow in the wind. And then there's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're worshiping Jesus in that moment. They're just so grateful. They're just so glad to be there. And then there's the disciples, and they're confused. They're going, what is going on? Do you hear all these reactions to Jesus riding in on this colt, on this donkey? All of them are thinking about the here and now. Just let's, let's take some kind of action today. Whatever the action is today, let's just respond to it. I don't think any of them realized that on that day, during this last week of Jesus' life, their, their actions in that moment actually lasted, and we continue to feel today, thousands of years later. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, I think, is that we pay attention to today. And our reactions to today, how we see Jesus today, but always having an open mind to how I live my life today might just have consequences for tomorrow. What I do with my life, how I follow Jesus, could actually impact future generations, even long after I'm gone. Because you never know what hangs in the balance 
of your life today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on that last week, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, there's so much going on, so many emotions, so many thoughts, so many wonderings. And God, I would imagine all those people on that day were just like us, living in the moment, thinking about today, just today, and not thinking about all the consequences for the future. And so God, we thank you. We thank you for all those reactions that we can learn from this morning. But God, we also are mindful that how we live our lives today could truly matter for tomorrow, for decades, even generations. God, make us faithful. Make us humble. Make us more like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. At the feet of Jesus, worshiping you. And God, even make us like the disciples. We don't understand everything. We still have a lot of questions. We're still perplexed. But like the disciples, help us to keep walking with you, to stay curious, and to stay hopeful. For on the other side of the, on the, of the cross is the resurrection. God, make us resurrection people, people of hope, people that look far beyond our own daily concerns and cares, but look to you as the author, the sustainer, and the one who makes all things new. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.